This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook, Volume 2, and today is August 20th, 2023. Please tell us your name and the years you're at Hofstra Radio. Yes, my name is Brett Dion. Uh, my years, um, 1991 to 1996. Okay. Well, thank you for coming back and, and joining us again, and I, I feel like it's somehow uh, apropos or kismet or something that today is National Radio Day, and oh. I'm talking to you about our time at Hofstra Radio and how, uh, you know, hope it'll come through, I'm sure, how important you were to my love of radio and, and, and the radio station. So uh, I'm, I'm thrilled we're doing this together today. Right. And I still like radio. <laughs> What's left of it, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Sometimes you have to, like, listen to things outside the country to really appreciate radio. Well, well, you were always a master at finding new and interesting things, so I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about that along the way. Um, let's go back to your time at Hofstra Radio. What, what titles or positions did you have and when? Um, so I was airwave producer, and I, I, I'm most certain, I sort of have to reverse engineer this because um, let's, let's say we know that I was co-music director in the um, 1993 fall and the 1994 spring. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I came into that position from being airwave, airwave producer, the, the, the late night alt, alt modern rock show at that time. And, um, so that means I was, I was doing that. It has to be in spring of 93, uh, and summer of 93. Right. Right. So let's, let's talk about airwave producer, because I think, um, that's, that's a big part of, understanding your time uh at the station how did you wind up in that job what were you thinking what was it about what did you do so on and so forth um well i i know i i know i took the reins from uh scott smolov uh, mm-hmm. or scott bang if we're talking about the radio name <laughs> um and i you know i had already i had been i had sort of taken a slot i i think i was i think you know early on by 92 i must have uh had one of those late night uh, one to three shifts of airwave and um, got to know the show really appreciated it. Um, I had also, I was also, I had come into it from high school being very much about that genre. I mean, it, and it really was a genre now that I think about it, that um, we were sort of being told by that time what college radio was and so in my in my mind you know and i mean there was a whole chart system devoted to it so you know that the big the the you know the big groups then were um or artists you know were rem and um i mean for my memory it was like concrete blonde and um, Mm -hmm. uh and then you saw like sort of the, the 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 bubblings of 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 the of British um, the uh, cool cool Britannia kind of movement happening where where stone right. roses were were coming up and and uh, soup dragons people like that. You know, you you were saying just a minute ago about you know that we were being told what college radio was, and I guess for a couple of years before us, there were bands that were were now becoming super mainstream and popular. Uh, you know, U two, The Cure. Uh, Depeche Mode. Those were not yeah. indie college bands anymore, but they certainly were part of, of the airwave genre, I think. Yeah, 
Yeah. We also had that influence too of, of being on Long Island where there was a, a major commercial um, modern rock station that, that had sort of maybe um, taken the focus away from, from maybe what college radio in that area would have had otherwise to themselves. Um, so, so we had to sort of look a little bit more towards what was, I don't know, the cooler B sides and the, yeah. the album tracks that, uh, that, that maybe that, that big time modern rock station was, wasn't, uh, paying attention to. Mm. So I have in my memory that at some point, I feel like Kathy Wurzberger had at some point during that year, 92, 93, been the music director and Scott Smolev started off as airwave producer. And I think at some point Kathy accepted uh, a move up to station manager and Scott became music director. And then you stepped in and took over airwave. Does that sound yeah, right? I, mean, I, I will, I will, I will take your word for it. I it's, it's weird for me to um, it's, 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 too bad actually that I don't have a as well of a, a, a memory of how those those um, movements were happening and, and who was taking on what role um, we were such a cohesive group um, and I just remember it was like we were all like fingers on the same hand um, that we were we were really working towards things together where um, I mean so I was writing maybe little reviews on on compact disc cases for the airwave show to sort of give people some guidance, but I wasn't the only one doing that. I mean, there there were definitely a few people who were happy to take something home for the weekend and and um, give it give it their thoughts, and then it you know before it went into rotation. Hmm. Um, so that was that was a I think. I think I just felt like I was really on a, uh, a good team, um, environment there. Yeah. I mean, we, we had, we had so many people who were so knowledgeable yourself, especially, um, and it was such a fertile time for the music. And I guess that's sort of what I was, was leading to talking about that chronology with Kathy and Scott and yourself. This was prime time alternative radio or alternative music radio and college radio. This was when that little tiny genre that you spoke of was now coming to dominate the pop music charts. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it was reflected in how we were uh, really kind of being courted by um, major record labels who had, who were now, you know, now signing these, what were tiny bands that would have normally spent some years on indie labels, uh, not only were, not only were those bands getting courted, but then the indie labels were getting bought up or or getting major distribution from the the, the major labels. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were we are and you know that was the thing too is that we were in a prime position in a location where all of all of these labels were in business, um, which meant that you know every time some of these bands circulated into the city on tours. Um, there was a lot, there were meet and greets and there was, um, passes to shows. Um, I keep one of these, uh, ticket stub albums and 
I've got a lot of great uh, late 90s ticket stubs. Mm-hmm. But the reason I don't have many early 90s ticket stubs and, and some of the memory, you know, the memories are equivalent between that time and the later time. But I don't have any sort of physical evidence because we were getting comped for so many shows. Yeah, yep. we were on the we were on lists, you know, which and I mean, I, and I know I know now that, of course, not many people have any physical remnants of when they go to shows currently. But um, yeah, the if I if I could somehow like reproduce that, 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 um, I think I'd have a lot better, better recall of like when and who I saw at different times back then. Yeah. I have a, I have a memory of us going to shows, if not weekly, multiple times a week and just, just every size venue. It could be a huge venue. It could be a hole in the wall. It could be Irving Plaza. It was, it was everything in between and it was constant. And right. a lot of it was in the city or in Jersey, but a lot of it was on Long Island too. So this was this is a huge time, and I can't think of a better person to be running a show like Airwave at that time than yourself. And you've kind of alluded to some of the jobs of Airwave producer, but if you if you can drill down into the minutia a little bit, you're talking about clearing records when new releases came in. Yeah, uh, you're talking about the scheduling. You're talking about having a, a 1 a.m. to 3 a.m. shift, uh, which was the second half of the four hour airwave block uh you're talking about concerts and promotions and tickets um what's that like walking in as as airway producer and how many like chainsaws are you juggling all at once there um yeah well you know i i went i did try things that kind of blew up in my face (laughs) one of the one of them one of them was that i thought uh that we really um we could do away with uh, basically anything from um, more than that was like more than 12 years old. <laughs> so, <laughs> so like I sort of like made this arbitrary um, thinking that uh, basically we wanted to be um, current and maybe include a little bit of the new wave, but anything from the seventies was like old hat and, and not relevant. Can you imagine um, cutting out, uh, clash records right. <laughs> or, right. uh, you know, or that, that, that whole, um, that whole initial, um, wave of punk. So no Ramones, no sex pistols, uh, no jam. Yeah. 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 I mean that it's laughable when I, when I, um, look back on it, but I was naive. I was really, um, uh, I, and I didn't have that knowledge. I basically was like appeasing what my own sort of, um, knowledge was at that time um in of music so well, there was, there was uh, so much going on you yeah. know again I, I i for those of the listeners who weren't there at the time i mean you and i remember it was just big record after big record and it, again it's not just a u2 or depeche mode or pixies there are all these really good records coming out constantly right and we really had an emphasis on airwave on the new releases and Again, if I can extrapolate a little bit further, commercial radio started picking up on those things. And I remember yes. that DRE and K-Rock and WNEW and BAB and all these stations started to pull from that catalog that you're talking about, that late 70s, early 80s, new wave and, and punk stuff, and then incorporating that into theirs. So we're shifting ourselves because we didn't want to be a copycat or we didn't want to sound like what they sounded like. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's right. And so we, um, you know, I think we did we did look for um, odd oddities that were that were probably um, bonus tracks that were mm-hmm. um, that maybe uh, went into um, the the latter part parts of the album that were maybe they were had running times that were six or seven minutes or whatever. Um, yeah, but that was, it was strange to sort of um, having, re- I remember reviewing like a Flaming Lips record, the one that was maybe their major label debut. Right. And then a year goes by and She Don't Use Jelly was pl- played on every major commercial station in the city as like a, I mean, that was, that was a phenomenal kind of breakthrough at that point um, for them. And uh, so we had to sort of keep, keep looking for, and, and there was, yeah, there was no shortage because there really, uh, there was a, a frenzy uh, and a momentum where uh, they, everyone was wanted to strike while the iron was hot, that kind of idea. Yeah. You wanted to find the next hot thing or the next interesting thing or promote the the, al- the the album cut that you like that wasn't a single uh there's definitely a lot of competition and a lot of content to get out there so i you know i don't want to defend the decision or argue with you but i i can i can see the logic behind it like well this stuff's getting played elsewhere which was a big part of what we were doing yeah let's focus on these things and promote these bands and and this genre instead right right it was it, it was um you sort of wanted to just uh, keep keep the focus on on new. I think that was my that was my mindset um, because there was so much uh, coming through um, that. Um, and you know, I I, have, I remember having conversations with like other jocks who were, would come in and see what was what was coming in, what was new, and we got at least by the time I was a music director we were like sort of falling behind where I, something would get shelved in a, in a mailbox and you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't realize that it had come in two weeks prior. And uh, so it really was like a, a, um, a feast of, of, um, of new music for a time mm-hmm. and a wild. Yeah. I remember a lot of that stuff at that point coming in on CD and mm-hmm. much less vinyl, right? That yeah. that's about the the shift time when it was almost exclusively CDs coming in, right? Um, yeah, the, that's absolutely true. Uh, you 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 get um, you get twelve inch singles. I think that was yeah, that was uh, something that they were that some some bands and labels still wanted to to put out there. Um, and, and I think our station had a reputation for looking for those things as well. Certain record companies were used to sending those kinds of things uh, to us. So I think that just that just continued. But but you're basically as airwave producer getting inundated with all of this new music. You make that decision, you know, to focus, you know, that that twelve year cutoff date. I guess about 1980. What else yeah. were you doing as airwave last. producer? No, no, it didn't <laughs> last. But it was it's a worthy experiment. Yeah, it was an experiment. Uh, what was I doing as their wave producer? So yeah. the 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 reviews, uh, you know, that I I actually really enjoyed that, and um, I mean we could, I don't I don't have to talk about this right at this moment, but um, it did feed into work that I did later in life, um, but sort of like that evaluation 
of looking for tracks that were not getting played on the other stations, looking for bad words, mm-hmm. and and you know just uh, and doing little short reviews. I think I don't know if we had, we must have had a star system or something where we were. Uh, I, I think I was putting ratings on discs or what is it? It was a grade, you know. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Um, yeah, and we did have we did have light and medium and heavy rotation, as I recall. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, yeah. Again, because there were things that we wanted to push, or that record companies were asking us to push, and then, um, you know, I, this is this was a little bit earlier, but like the last Pixies record comes out. Yeah. You know, we don't necessarily need to push that a lot. Uh, right. or ask people to play it because they're going to play it. But there's something else that's interesting. Let's let's push people towards that. And I remember there were there were two or three categories of, of things for rotation. Sure. Yeah, and I you know, and I, I might be like coloring this with my own present um, feelings, but I I think it was also like a really exciting time for um, uh, women in music. Yeah. You know, for every for every um, big Pixies record, you know, you had the, like a Breeders Pod record that would um, would sort of be bubbling up, and and you could sort of say if you like this, then maybe you know this is this is reminiscent of that, and but and yet it's like women taking taking the lead, which I thought was um, I thought that was part of the um, the wonderful thing about being in that in that field at that time. Um, one thing that I took with me from, from being younger too, before I even got to the radio station is that I loved reading charts. Hmm. And so, and so being able to not only participate in the, in the charts that, um, the college music journal CMJ was running back then, but also to read what other stations were doing was, um, I I think I, I think I must've just loved to, to look through those and, look for the common aspects, but also what, what maybe things were uh, being tried elsewhere that might've been regional. I still think there's something really um, kind of tragic about there not being the, uh, the regional hits that um, even commercial radio used to have before MTV kind of turned us in, into a, a nation of, of one radio station. Um, mm. and, now, and, now, and now satellite radio does the same thing. Right. So you're saying there might have been, you know, the, the, the Athens, Georgia scene or Seattle scene or Southern Cal or whatever it might be. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, mm. And speaking of Seattle, I, I think I think we were also um, we we really felt like we had some agency with that because it even seemed like the record companies were not quite prepared for how gigantic that was. And that we could sort of like impress upon um, the labels to some extent, like what what was I mean? Obviously, you know, everyone wanted a piece of something like Nirvana, but um, we could sort of push for um, what we liked about a Mud Honey, for instance, or right. or someone like that. And so there was a there was a a, a dialogue happening there. Um, where, where we, I think, had more, um, a little bit of more control, or, or at least an illusion of it, you know. So I think that kind of speaks to your time as co-music director. 
what do you remember about that job and who were you working with? Um, so I was working with, um, with Jen, um, she was going by Murphy on the air, wasn't she? Yeah. Yeah. She was Jen Murphy, yeah. but now Jen um, Murphy Packer, of course. I'm, yeah. I try to be sensitive about these things, but cause like, you know, um, well, so we, uh, you know, she was coming at it from, because she was running, uh, she had been producer of the rock and roll Oasis or maybe still was, um, during her co-MD time. And we, we brought different, different things to the, to the table. Um, but, uh, I think we basically put together a, a pretty good brain, um, of, of what, what you would say is like rock music, I guess, you know, in, in general. Um, and it was, I mean, it was, it was an exceptional, I mean, it was, it was great to have that. Um, again, like it goes back to what I was saying about, um, this sense of like, uh, teamwork and camaraderie, um, that was really heightened or so, so I, so I recall because, we didn't have our our college leadership at that time was um, had had a you know a tragedy. So yeah. we um, I think we did some ex took some extraordinary steps to um, to uh, fill that uh, void. Um, so we all did pull together a lot more, and I think even the um, I think it, that was even recognized uh, after we were, after we did, after the reins were handed off to someone official. Yeah. Um, so um, I don't, I don't think it was just uh, flattery, you know? No, I, I think, uh, you know, you're talking about the, the time period after Jeff Krause passed away and uh, Sue Zizza was interim general manager and Steve Spencer was there and, and before Bruce Avery came on board and we were the pirates taking over the ship and, and running with it and, and making things work. And, um, you know, I talked to Jen a couple of weeks ago, uh, with these same questions and she said, it was really great working with you because you had your different interests, but you worked well together. Your schedules didn't always align, but you communicated really well with each other. Say, well, you know, this record label needs to be called back and, these piles of CDs have to be labeled and, you know, put in the, in the log and so on and so forth that you guys had a real good sense of uh, what needed to be done and how to work together in that tiny, messy, chaotic little music <laughs> office. Yeah. Yeah. Now, and um, I, I have to, I, it's great to, to hear that. And I do think that I was not um, much of a social animal before um, uh, working with Jen. And I think she, she brought out a lot of a real good positive um, aspects of, of like um, of working together and also, um, you know, nurturing a real, a great friendship. Um, and I mean, we would have, I think we had some really fun talks where we, I think we were even like conferencing sometimes with some of these record reps and we got to know some of them um, pretty well, but, or we got to know their, their quirks or um, sort of, have fun uh, with our phone conversations with them. Um, I remember talking to one guy who was with, he was like with Polygram Distribution, and um, we, Jen and I, had gotten it in our heads that we were um, that everyone had their um, um, 
guilty pleasure. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I think, I think that's kind of like passe now it's like, no, you know, you, you, you should be free to like whatever you like and, and you know, but I think we, we both had our, I think because we were in this like, uh, state of, um, how, how so much new music was so, um, critically acclaimed that, um, what, whatever we had liked as kids was, was somehow, um, really cheese ball. Um, and how would, you know, why, why wouldn't someone who worked for a record company who was really into new music, how could they not have a, some, some sort of, uh, band in the closet that they didn't want to ever, <laughs> ever share or talk about? And we, we did pose this, this question, you know, what's your, uh, you know, I like, I, I, I'm, I, I grew up like loving foreigner, you know, that's just mine. Right. And, um, and I, you know, and I, and I know that was like, uh, the, the cheesy corporate rock of the day, um, you know, stadium rock and, um, and Jen would have been bad company. Right. Right. Sure. And that's That's right. And, um, and this guy on the phone was like, don't ever ask that of any record rep. <laughs> <laughs> like it was so, you know i got we sort of like i feel like that was the uh response was like that's uh that's off the table because <laughs> so, it wasn't cool yeah i think so or yeah that was like somehow it's amazing to think that we somehow pushed a button like that was that was um a, a silly question but see see that's what you that's what you get for trying to be social just you know, know, know just don't well, don't be social at all <laughs> yeah well so i bring up the but i bring up that story because uh, uh i think jen and i sort of um we worked we worked well together but also we we did have a lot of fun um doing that work and um and yeah i mean there were all all sorts of uh what what i guess you could call ancillary things of you know talking about promos and participating in one another's um promos for for shows and um whether it was ideas or whether you actually like you know walked in and said two words um there was that kind of thing too and then there was just the the hangout factor of um hearing new things through osmosis i you know there were some like fun debates about which band uh belonged in which format Right. I mean, here there was here where we were talking about only eight hours of the of the evening schedule, right? Uh, or maybe even less. Um, but um, that there were some divisions there, and actually that got harder and harder. You know what? You know where that got hardest was with the metal show and Airwave, mm-hmm. because um, bands like Soundgarden and Faith No More were um, they were they were stretching. Uh, in both both of those genres, and now I think it's all laughable because I've actually become a real fan of what um, the idea of like the where everything can be available um, online, and you can basically put together your own your own musical tastes based really solely on what you hear and feel. Um, you know, genre was like a it was we were we were having things categorized for us and but um I, I think so much of that that music at that time it was 
the identity. It wasn't just the genre. It's that's oh, that's sure. how you dressed. It's who you hung out with. If you know you were <laughs> listening to uh, you know this this kind of metalish band or or whatever it might be, that was. Uh, later it comes on to blend. And I think a lot of that comes during this time period of it being so popular and people being exposed to more, but that was, that was your shield. That was your, you know, the flag that you, you walked under. Yep. Yeah. It was community. Um, it was, it was a, a culture and a community. And, um, but initially, you know, I think it was just a way for people to find things in the record store. <laughs> um, you know, it comes down to commerce uh, to some extent. Um, so that, that, that was a bit of a tangent, but, um, but yeah, we, I think we, I think we had to sort of, um, I don't want to say fight, but we had to negotiate some of those, um, differentials of, uh, of, of where things fit. Um, it, it was all fun. Yeah. But we had some very opinionated people at the time. Uh, yeah. You know, a very knowledgeable people, you know, yourself and Jen and, and I would stick my two cents in for whatever that was worth. But, you know, Nick Carmine was around. Uh, Frank Rizzo was around for part of that time. Steve Infield, uh, Beaker, you know, John Kay, uh, mm-hmm. Scott Smolov had his opinions. There were a lot of people who knew a lot of stuff about a lot of music and everyone had thoughts about, well, this this is an Oasis song or this is an Oasis album. No, this is Airwave. This is, you know. Uh, so we, we definitely had uh, our, our opinions, and I, I think, like you said, it was fun and it was part of uh, you know learning new stuff and, and expanding the community. Yeah, yeah. And isn't it's funny in all of that that we didn't expand the schedule at all? Well, we, we did a little bit because at, at some point the Oasis was 8 to 11, and uh-huh. Whiplash was Monday nights, and the Dead Zone came in on Tuesday nights, uh-huh. and Soul on a Roll – and Fridays was 10 at 10 with Joe Romano. And I don't mm-hmm. remember when it happened, but at some point we pushed the Oasis to 7 p.m. Mm-hmm. to 11 to give two that's hour a, blocks. And I think we, we cut an hour of jazz, um, which yeah. broke. It wasn't heartbreaking because it was still there, but it certainly uh, hurt my soul a little bit because I did love the jazz show. But there was such a demand for that rock product and those then two hour shows of whiplash became two hours and the dead zone became two hours and mm-hmm. things like that. So I think it was necessary to accommodate all those voices and uh, all those characters. Yeah. Yeah. No, no but, but we, we couldn't do more than that. We couldn't expand it more than that. I think. No, no, you make a good point. Um, yeah. Not with, I mean, we had very, we had very um, focused, uh, we had a focused crew, um, but we still were limited in our in our um, manpower. Yeah, and it's it's not like we didn't ask. We we wanted to expand the schedule. We wanted to change the classics. We just we just couldn't. We weren't allowed to do certain things, no matter That's how right. much we we asked or campaigned. But um, thank you for letting me uh, insert so many of my opinions into your time as it's as a, music director well, and airway producer. Problem- it's, we can't we can't ever have some a real objective conversation, right? Because we we did coexist during so much of that time, and I and I'm thankful for it. And and yeah, and, and I said it before, and I'll, I'll say it a thousand times. I mean, your knowledge and your ear and your ability to put stuff in context really educated me so much and gave me so much confidence. If I got in a conversation with someone, be like, well. 
you know, I mean, I'd say, well, Brett said this, but I always knew in the back of my mind, well, like Brett reviewed this record this way, or he talked about this. You were such a, an integral part of, of the expansion of my musical knowledge that I can't, uh, I can't not think about that time and think about all the things that I learned from you and, and how I tried to put that to use at the station. Well, it's really great to hear that. And I think it, it also, it, it plays into, it's hard to, it's hard for me not to talk about this now is that I really so um, value that in, in the pursuit of my career now of like getting, connecting people with the right information. Mm. It's a little different now, but um, that uh, that's kind of like a, you know, wish fulfillment of, of working in archives and, and libraries is, 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 is what you, you know, and the other thing, let's, I'm, I might as well say this right now too, um, cause it, it reflects on that as well. Um, I just love being surrounded by shelves of music. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and that, that little dingy closet of a, of a music director's office was, um, it was just like, I was just like a, a pig and you know what, I mean, um, I, I loved I loved that uh, um, environment. It, I, it, I felt you know like I was part um, Andy Travis on WKRP. Yeah. I felt like I was um, home, and that um, that uh, all this stuff was like uh, um, a treasure. Like a like I was sort of like working at the like the the best bank ever, and I, I had all this. Um, this wealth uh, surrounding me. Yeah, I feel like for for you and I and, and Jen and Scott and a few other people that the, the radio station office in Memorial Hall was a central socializing place, but really it was that music office that yeah. there'd be five or six or seven of us in that office and listening to new releases or digging through the shelves that we were just always in there and like you said just just being surrounded by those records and cds and posters it was pretty fantastic yeah yeah the um there and there were only a couple times where i i, I was asked to to turn something down because <laughs> i which you know it was it was it was the worst when i was alone and left to my own devices um and i and i could blow my own ears out and 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 not harm anyone directly in the in the in the space, but then someone someone would ask me to to uh, quiet down something because they actually had to make a phone call. Ah, uh, you kids! Yeah. Um, what is a story that you always tell about working at Hofstra Radio? Oh, um, I tell you something that came up recently, and it's because um, it's because I have an uncle who's also a great uh, collector of, of music, and he's he's actually trying to uh, to pare down his collection right now. He's he's probably going to look for for my help to um, to do some descriptive work and to sort of uh, get things arranged with with what he has left over. Um, I was telling him about that time at the radio station. And I believe it was, I think I can pinpoint this to the Easter vacation of 1993. Uh You know where I'm going with this? Uh Um, There. And, and it's, it's morbid to, to say this now. um, And it's, it's a real shame that I don't remember the name of the person uh, uh, that 
made this wonderful donation to the station. But let me just get to the jump to it. We called it the dead guy file, mm -hmm. right? That this mm -hmm. was a this was a person uh, that the station that who had been devoted to the station, and you probably. You, by now, with all the interviews you've done, you, you probably know something about this individual. Yeah, if I if I could take a second, because Jen also referred to it as as the dead guy records or the dead guy. It was Elliot Lifson, mm -hmm. and Elliot. I don't think was ever a station uh, a student at Hofstra, but he was a community volunteer and he worked at WHLI starting in the nineteen seventies. And he was a guy who would help people get jobs. He would donate equipment when uh, it became available and say, do you guys need this or need that? And he was a real uh, devoted member of the community and, and helped to so many people. And um, he died very young. I want to say he was yeah. in his forties. Yeah. Well, all those records were seventies um, and eighties, I think. Yeah. I mean, for the most part. And they were pristine and they were phenomenal. And it was, it, I, I, I want to say it was, it was definitely hundreds of records. I don't know if it was over a thousand records, but it was yeah. just a huge, huge uh, collection that, that we really spent an awful lot of time with. Right. Well, and there's where the, the awful lot of time comes in uh, when, when the records came in is that, and I, you know, I'm not sure who came up with this, um, that it was important for us to, to basically catalog, um, each record's artist and an album title and track listing mm -hmm. and maybe even um, running time. I'm not sure, but um, we ended up, I think there was maybe uh, five or six of us and we were all, <laughs> and this is my first lesson in, in interoperability, which uh, comes up a lot in, in uh, you know, information science is that I think we were all working on different systems. Yeah. Uh, at the time, I had one of these brother um, word processors yep. that I could save things to a disk, but it was you know a unique uh, format of, on a 3.5 3 floppy. And um, other people were, I think, using typewriters. Mm -hmm. I think there was probably someone else with, a, with an actual laptop. Yeah, I had a word processor. Uh-huh. So we we were like going to town with these things. And I think we probably all must have um, gotten through like 20, 25 of these records each. Um, but in the end, I don't actually recall what the sort of product was. Right. Yeah. Dave Koenig talked about this a little bit too. And he, he claimed it was his idea to create this catalog and, those of us who were around the station over that break were like, yeah, we'll just take this time and spend spring break in the basement because that's what you do in college yeah. and catalog these records. And, you know, again, you just mentioned 3.5 inch floppy, you nerd. Yeah. Um, <laughs> people don't know what that is. They know what the icon is now on their computers, but people don't know what that was. There was no Excel. There were no spreadsheets. There was no computer database. We were printing these things out on paper and yeah. putting them into like loose leaf binders. A binder. Yeah. Okay. Um, and the thing was, is that we had all these records that hadn't gotten that same treatment. Yeah. You know, so that, that was just the, the, I, I wonder if we were using it as some sort of method to sort of, uh, 
yeah, to sort of cull and, mm-hmm. and decide what we wanted to keep, um, which is, you know, all well and good. And I, the thing was that I guess my overall point with the whole project was that it was a team project. And I remember just having a blast with it. Um, and I have to say also uh, to look at it in a broader context is that I pretty much did not leave the Hofstra campus, except for like weekends and holidays from the spring of 93 to the, to, um, graduation. Yeah. Um, I was basically, I basically lived there for a year and a half because I, I worked it out so that I could work a job there at the campus over the summer of 93 and stay in a dorm and, and get my first internship in the city. Um, so what was the internship? Uh, that was at NBC and, and right. I do have, uh, I should, you know, I thank Dave Koenig a great deal for that because it like was a springboard to all sorts of things. Mm. It doesn't stop there. I mean, there, um, I mean, we can talk about this right now is that my, my post college experience, um, was so remarkable for all of the help I received, um, from a, from friends and acquaintances uh, through the radio station, um, Sue Zizza with uh, with some of the work I did freelance for WABC as a board operator, um, John Baker uh, hooking me up with a, a record store job so that I didn't like starve to death after I graduated, and my two roommates, uh, you know, after I couldn't live in a dorm anymore. Uh, you know, found a place in Belmore and I don't, you know, it was just, uh, I'm so, I'm so, uh, I'm so privileged to have, have been able to, um, get those people to help me. I mean, get them (laughs) for them to get me to sort of go in and, and, and it ended up uh, really helping me thrive through that, through that time. Which, you know, I mean, that year after college for, I think, a lot of people is can be so um, uh, difficult yeah. and, um, and challenging and directionless. So uh, it really, really, it can, it can make all the difference, I think, to, uh, to how you go out into the world. I, I think it's a testament to the relationships that we built. Uh, at Hofstra Radio. And I think it's a testament to how important you were to so many people that people were saying, hey, you know, try this opportunity or do this or, or whatever it was. I think it was just, uh, uh, you, I, I think we talked about this before. It took you a little while to get involved at this station. But once you were there, I mean, you were at the, at the center of just about everything that was going on socially and, and, you know, on air and technological wise, you were, you were in everything. And I think you had a a great effect on a great number of people. Well, yeah. And it, it, it didn't come with, it didn't come without um, some, some uh, difficulties. I think, I think that uh, kind of heady experience can also like, I, there was a, there was a big, I think in my last two months, actually, um, I, I really kind of unraveled uh, to some degree um, and recovered. Um, and, you know, again, thank goodness for the, um, the people that were 
that were there to uh, to see me through uh, to the you know on the other side of all that. Hmm. Um, that is a to get back to the original point of the the story that that <laughs> yeah, that that, that spring break. that spring break of records we did have a really good time. Yeah, I think, I think, I think we were all a little bit fried and punchy after that, but that was that was a really good time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, again, I think I think back on those things as formative to um, what ended up giving me um, joy in a in a career. Um, you know, cataloging, and um, it sounds it sounds like you know, I know it's like funny to hear that, like the geeking out over um, making lists, essentially. But uh, but essentially, uh, you know, being a um, a reviewer or a uh, or getting things uh, neat and tidy, uh, that's that's really something that you know. And when it's focused on music, but also with uh, working with great people, mm. nothing better, I think, to me, to my Amen. mind. Amen. Amen. Um, this is sort of a takeoff on one of the later questions, you know, about going back in time and giving advice. Given now that you are a professional archivist and this is what you do and you've done it for many people and done it very well or for many organizations if you could go back in 60 seconds and give that group of idiots in the spring of 1993 some advice could you have straightened this out a little bit or was it just a lost cause in that archive thing no i i i I, interoperability was the key so we should have all just been working on either all on typewriters or all on word processors or all on, you know, a PC program, you know, whatever Windows 3.1 was, if that was available then. Um, but um, the, I guess that would have been the key to just sort of, uh, I guess as long as it all ended up on paper, then then good for us. Um, yeah, yeah. But because that was the ultimate uh, destination. Um, but yeah, I would have maybe said we, we could you know, we also, here's the other thing is like, you have to really make sure that people understand that we did not have the internet. So there was no, if we said that, oh, all we need to do is take the album title and the artist, and then we'll just like run a search and, right, right. and download all that. There was, there was not, that was not to happen for us. <laughs> it's, a, it's incredible. Here, here's a, here's a, a tangent question. I, I, I don't think there was a, any computer in the office, maybe Sue Zizza had a computer in her right. office. I don't think there was a computer in the basement of Memorial Hall. Right. I believe that's right. I think, I think if you wanted high tech, it was probably, you know, within our CD player. <laughs> <laughs> Which were still pretty new at the time. Oh, God, right, man. right. Oh, yeah. ancient times, last century and all that. Um, so, so that's a story that you always tell. Is there a story that you've forgotten about or, or rarely tell about your time at the station? Um, yeah, you're, you're, um, now it is getting, um, it's hard for me. It, it is hard to, to come up with something like that. Mm. Um, I was, Yeah, I, I, I don't know if, I mean, there, so there's, um, there's a little bit of embarrassment in things. I mean, this is just, you could file this under more like funny memories, but uh, I, I do recall coming back from what I think was a Smashing Pumpkins gig at Irving Plaza or Roseland. And um, 
witnessing some real uh, like hysteria from the audience and like a um, somehow shoes got thrown at the stage uh, yeah. at, at um, uh, Billy Corrigan, I think. Um, I don't remember why. I think maybe there was some like some trash talking or something. And, uh, but the, it was, it was wild and it was a great show, but I think it was also maybe cut short because of their, they were sort of fed up the band anyway. Oh, wow. And, um, and I think what we did, I think maybe it was me and Nick to Carmine actually dropping in on your show, um, at the campus, um, you know, somehow we, we were able to get back um, uh, to, to Hempstead by that time. And, and basically giving like an instant uh, review of the, of the concert. And, and at some point, while I was like sort of, we were, we were both sort of uh, getting really excited and sort of reliving the experience as we, as we were sharing with it with you live on air. And I ended up um, definitely dropping a, uh, probably an f bomb on the on the air to describe something. Um, so that that um, that's something that I, I I don't know I just find kind of dude immature. Dude, I'm getting goosebumps because I I had not ah <laughs> oh, like I I oh my whole body's tingling right now thinking about that because I have not I totally forgot about that. I don't yeah. remember the f bomb and that might be just protective coating of my brain but um that's yeah you guys came in and whatever we were playing it was you guys went in the announcing booth and put on the headphones and we were across the window from each other and you guys just let forth and holy cow i i completely forgot about that wow Well, I think we, you know, we felt like we had witnessed something, whether, you know, it, yeah. um, it was just, um, it was a little bit bizarre. It was a little bit of a, a, a moment and, um, and we had to like download it right there. Mm. So um, that was one of the uh, exciting things, you know, and I don't, I think that was like a recurring theme, not just for us, uh, right. those three people, but um, that you could uh, go into the city or, or, or around town and see something and um you know if you had a if you had a pal that was on the air at that moment um you could which was always yeah it was always yeah, didn't matter who yeah. it was you show up and 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 you know jump on the mic right. and and there you go it always happened yeah because um, i mean and in a funny way it was kind of community we were still doing community service because we you know we, <laughs> we were if you weren't playing the music then for God's sakes, talk about it, you know, like tell us what the experience of like, you know, those live shows are, are about. And, um, um, so, so I think that was a real, um, a real fun, uh, outcome of, of, of all those, you know, the part, partly all those promotional, um, concerts that we got to go to or the, the, the tickets that we, we took advantage of. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. That's, wow, that's blowing my mind. Um, you mentioned earlier, you have your, your book of, of tickets and I, I, again, have a similar gap where I just, yeah. I know I went to shows. I don't have the tickets for them. Um, yeah. Is there a show 
or a song or an album or an event that defines your time at the station? Yeah. Well, let's talk about Brian. This I I have to appeal to to you uniquely for this. Mm. Um, let's talk about the concert weekend to end all concert weekends. Wow. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, and you know, and it, there does, we, are we going to involve also the, the minute detail of some deceit that occurred on my part by actually pretending to be you? I, I, I think it's, I think it's, uh, I you think, think the, it's really um, to discuss it now. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The, you think, <laughs> The statute of limitations is passed right, on this right. with uh, to protect the idiots. Yeah, right. right. Um, so it was. So listen, I have the ticket for the show that we ended up seeing on an April night of nineteen ninety four. It was a Friday night. It was a Friday night, and let, I can give you the specific date if you just let me um, flip through a little, uh, flip back a little and bit. And if I remember, this was this was the backup. We were. Tickets. That's right. That's it's crazy to think this, but yes, the we were going to yeah, <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. Go, no. We were going to see um, Mud Honey, right? Which for me probably would have been like the dozenth time because right, right. Mud Honey was the band that perpetually opened for every other band that I was seeing back then. You know, but and they were they were headlining at Irving Plaza. They were. That's right. They were. So it was their gig, and and we turned. We found out later that um, Eddie Vedder showed up to that show and did like a. Well, that was the rumor that he was coming, and I was okay. interning at WNEW, That's and right. I knew the guy, and I had asked him weeks before to put us on the list, yeah. and I think the the push was so great that he was just like this. No, you you guys are off. Like the I feel like the list got called and we kind of had a feeling that would happen because he wasn't returning my phone calls. So we had a backup. We had a backup plan because I think we went to Irving Plaza and got turned away. Right, right. So here I'm looking at the ticket right now. It is Friday, April 15th, 1994. And the uh it's at Radio City Music Hall. Mm -hmm. And it's with uh and it's sponsored by Nobody Beats the Wiz. Wow. (laughs) Wow. And and the the headliner of this particular show is none other than the Godfather of Soul, James Brown. So and we got orchestra seats, yeah, row D, section three hundred five. So we were like down there on the floor, and uh, a blast, Uh, just just showmanship, right? That whole idea of like, yeah, uh, that guy. He, he 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 put on the hardest working show in entertainment yeah. and let, let's just yeah. let's just point out again um we were gonna go see mud honey yeah and again my wnew connection that there were people who had won tickets to see james brown and didn't come get them <laughs> and so you came in and met me i was in the city already and you came in and mm-hmm. met me we went to irving plaza and then we went to radio city and watched james brown yeah. And I don't think, I think maybe by midway through that show, I don't think anyone was sitting. No. I think it was all standing. Um, yeah, 100%. And I remember he, I remember, tell me if I'm wrong. I, so I love the song Living in America. I know it's like sort of like a, it's like a, a post it. There's your guilty pleasure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but um, 
he did a version of that, and I think he he did it uh, as a tribute because the guy who had written that song had had recently passed. Oh, I didn't remember that. I know he did it, uh, but I didn't remember that. Yeah, mm. um, he was, and he was also responsible for that song. Um, I can dream about you. I can't remember his name. Right now. Oh, uh, oh, uh, Dan something. Dan, Dan, that's right. It's yeah. not Campbell. Um, oh, I love that song too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was sort of like, uh, yeah, it was good. It was good fake soul music. <laughs> it was from it was from that movie. It was a uh, Michael Paré and yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh man, yeah, um, Dan. Okay, so um, c- should we go on to the? It wasn't Dan, it wasn't Dan Penn. No, no, no that's no. another guy. Okay, all right. And so, I want to say Wakeling, but I know Dave no. Wakeling is the guy from General Public. No, um, so so that's Friday night. Yeah. So that's, so then Saturday, it was a, it was a group of us from the station. Um, and this isn't, wasn't a concert event per se, but we all, we were uh, invited to a press conference for, for Henry Rollins, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which was amusing. It was like, and you know what? You needed the day off from like, you couldn't go to another big rock show. You had to have some some buffer, right? So, so, so this was this was geared mostly towards college radio stations, yeah, and and so yeah. and there were a couple hundred people in a ballroom, and he kind of gave his his spiel, and then took yeah, questions. It was, around, it was in Times Square, wasn't it? Where yeah, it that sounds right. Um, yeah, yeah. Maybe so by Lincoln I, Center. Yeah, that. Yeah, I think it was by Lincoln Center. I feel like it was a hotel there, mm-hmm, where mm-hmm. the Iridium was. But anyway, so I, we do that. Yeah, and that was fun, and I still have a recording from that, as you know. <laughs> I, I do, <laughs> and, uh, I do. Um, and I know Christy was there because she gets a question in. Um, and then, uh, and then Sunday rolls around, and well, Sunday, Brian, well, t- well, time what? out, time out, because uh, I know you're getting sure. into the meat of it. I'm pretty sure that night, Saturday night, I'm pretty yeah. sure we wound up out in Rockaway to go see Wooden Snow. Oh, nice! At the Perfect. at the Blackwater Inn, I'm pretty sure we were all at the Blackwater Inn on Saturday night, and then Sunday is nice. the big event. Sunday's the big event, and and who has to work at IKEA? Me, dumbass, <laughs> stupid. So, but you had now is it because of WNEW that you yeah. had um, access to at a chance? Right, they were doing this then to to be able to purchase tickets. Yeah. Or yeah. Okay. Yeah. I remember Paul Um, cameras came in and he said, uh, I can get you two tickets. I can get you access to two tickets. Do you want them? And I don't, yes, but we had, I had to give my name. I think my social security number, my address, a credit card, like, like they had all kinds of information because they were trying to prevent ticket scalping. That's right? right. Yeah, because this was and this this kind of uh, preceded the whole um, battle with Ticketmaster. Right? Oh my god! Um, so and and so let's let's just say what the gig was. It was um, Pearl Jam at what was then called the Paramount yeah. at Madison Square Garden. Yeah, it's I guess now the theater at Madison Square Garden. Um, and and we're also are we also now just one week. After um, uh, after Kurt Cobain had died, I think it was like within days of that. Yeah. Um, but um, 
All right, so I actually had to collect all of your information. Yep. And 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 like an ID. I think I brought one of your yeah uh, yeah like at my college ID or something. IDs, um, to and I had to you know get the tickets from the uh, window, the will call window or whatever at uh, at at the garden um, in the middle of the day, um, and then we we went to that show that night and it was um, it was a pivotal time for them. It was also the same weekend they played uh, Saturday night live and they had um, unveiled um, not for you. Right. Um, because it, which was still six months away from actually put being put out on, on a record. And um, I mean, they were at their uh, really mainstream height at that point. Um, because they were, it was still, they were still touring behind, uh, verses. Yeah. And, um, I don't know which drummer they were on, <laughs> but, um, but another, you know, incredible, incredible event. And I only bring up the Kurt Cobain thing because I think that they also, ref- if they didn't do any, some, something in tribute, they certainly referenced him Yeah. that night. And I think that, you know, I mean, that time was so P.S. Thank you again. It was just an un- unbelievable, uh, like forty-eight hours. You know, just yeah. and and that's and that's you know uh, that that defines so much of what we were doing. We were we were yeah. getting into places. We we're using contacts. We we're staying out all night. We we're getting no sleep at all. Yeah. Working multiple jobs and just you know back and forth on the train and back and forth on the train and uh, that's that's what we did. It was, it yeah, was such yeah. a great time. And, uh, oh man, that's, no, yeah. and we, and we were, we were like a hive mind of energy. We were just like, um, uh, picking each other up and, um, and, and moving each other forward. Um, and it's unsus- it's unsustainable. No, <laughs> it's just, no. Even when you're 20, it's not, yeah, you can't keep that up. Yeah. Yeah. So just, you know, word, word of caution, everyone (laughs) (laughs) get enough sleep, take your vitamins. Yeah. Yeah. We were all constantly run down and I know I was always sick, but that's beside the point. That was a fantastic (laughs) weekend. I'm so glad you you brought that up because that was just, it's yeah. Still talk about it. And, and like you said, defines the time. Um, Yeah. So I guess that's the, that's the, the, the show uh, of, of that whole, um, it's the culminating sort of moment, I think, for for that time. Yeah, oh, I love it. That's so great. Um, what's your big, biggest accomplishment or proudest moment at the station? Um, that's a uh, that that does. I think it still goes to the, uh, the you know the the teamwork vibe. Um, and, and just being a, just being a participant, which, you know, for some people comes easy, I think. Um, but for me, not, not so. And I think it's also, it's a constant reminder to me that I really do, uh, uh, I need to sort of avail myself to, uh, to people and, uh, because of the, of the, of the enrichment that, that of just, um, the sort of dynamic, uh, that happens um between people that that can be so productive and also um fulfilling and enriching um that group gave me such a um 
for a time, such a resilience uh, mm-hmm. that, and I sometimes reflect more on like, oh boy, we had fun. You know, I mean, we just had a great conversation about how much fun we had. Um, but what I should really actually um, take with me m- more and more, I think, as I get older and also have um, have have battles with um, with doubt and um, anxiety, is that um, that group was such a um, a pool of uh, of resilience for me. Well, I, I think it you, you got to give yourself some amount of credit because again, in the last conversation we talked about that. Um, you know, it wasn't, you didn't walk in the door and instantly get on the air and you had to, you had to keep coming back and you had to find your niche. And that's, and that's a hard thing to do, you know, for a lot Mm -hmm. of us at 18, 19 years old to find that spot. And, you know, if I wasn't hanging out with Prahadka and if I didn't know Joe Romano and Dave Krug and and Nick, I probably wouldn't have gone down to the station, Yeah, you know, and, and you didn't really know anybody on campus, uh, I think. And then you kind of came in and, uh, you, you, through your own personal resilience, you made it your home and you became such an important part of the station. So, uh, I think that is a big thing that, that you kept coming back. Yeah. And it, it, I mean, the, the momentum that I got from that place is just, um, I, it, it really kind of, uh, floors me that, um, when I started doing well there, um, I think I started doing well with, uh, my coursework, Mm-hmm. I think I started doing well with um, the 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 film crew, which was also like a there were like a, a third home, mm-hmm. you know, to um, a, a third family. So um, all, all of those things, and then you know the the connections kind of like um, spun together. I mean, to um, you know, I know that I know that Jen feels that like some of the friends that I made. Uh, within uh, the film community of Hofstra also became, you know, her friends and hundred percent uh, so forth. So, yeah, we often talk about the, the split between TV and radio, but also film was its own thing. And you brought a lot of people in and that, and that's, that's a huge testament to yourself. And that brings me to, to two things I want to put up as things that I think were big accomplishments that you did at the station and, and one sort of the throwaway thing, and you can address it if you want, is that you designed the t-shirt. We, we, <laughs> we worked so hard to yeah. get enough funds to make a t-shirt that we could have for ourselves and give away and sell. So you designed that. That's one thing. But the other thing I think was really impressive is that we rearranged the Saturday evening schedule and you created a program called Music for a Darkened Room. And I think that was a yeah. big deal. In fairness, co-created. Um, although you know, I my co-creator like uh, departed. I think he yeah, it yeah. was he didn't want to lose his Saturday nights, and I and I don't blame him. Um, but uh, his ideas uh, were you know were good ones to um, um, to, to focus on soundtracks and also really kind of revel in the um, when you think about it, uh, soundtrack albums. You know, they're so much of the time, such a commercial, uh, opportunity, um, mm-hmm. to just, to just throw a bunch of stuff together, uh, to, to basically make compilations so that, um, you know, sometimes they are cohesive with whatever the film is, but a lot of times they're just, um, jukeboxes. Right. And, uh, and to basically have fun with that. I mean, to, to basically turn the whole, um, the whole show into a, a potpourri, um, 
of uh, you know a mixtape of of different different styles and genres and um, and you know looking back on it now that that might have really maybe maybe already being a, a fan of soundtracks back then mm-hmm. um, was sort of releasing me from having to care so much about um, format and genre and um, and sort of getting outside of that a little bit. And, you know, the only thing that obviously had to string everything together was that, oh, these are all from movies. Um, yeah. Well, you, you did, you always did a fabulous job of, of explaining and, and, and giving the music space to breathe and making people understand why it was important to the film. And I, I learned, I learned a ton from it. So I always thought it was, it was a huge thing. And it wasn't something that you did for six months. You kept doing it for a long time. Yeah. You know, so I invested, um, I think I, I think after college, after I finished um, and graduated, I um, I gave it sort of a new push. Like I really, um, I have actually still got the uh, audio cassettes where I started to um, uh, record clips off of videotape uh, of hmm. movies to to sort of drop in um, uh, throughout the shows, and. Um, and I knew I did. I knew I was doing that in like the summer after I graduated. So that was another thing that sort of steadied me mm. when when there was a lot of like mess or or you know uh, potential mess uh, of life at the time. Right. And um, I I think I really relied on that as like a staple uh, to sort of uh, keep me whole and uh, and and it also. You know what else it made? It made that new station less of a, um, and I mean, you know, the new building. Yeah. I got to do that in the new building. Um, And so I was thinking about this, that if I had somehow been able to keep going at, um, at um, Memorial Hall after graduating, it might have seemed like I was um, too long at the party kind of, you know, that I was sort of like stretching things um, where there, you know, where I should have known, known when to say goodbye, but it was kind of nice to get that new, um, to kind of get that. uh, What am I saying? I want to say that it, it made, um, it made stuff new again for a little while. Yeah. It was like reinvigorating. Yeah. So I'm glad I'm glad that I had that opportunity, and uh, and I do have to you know I appreciate that Bruce Avery uh, wanted that to continue as a as a community uh, volunteer opportunity. I don't know what the community was, <laughs> but um, um, I uh, I worked on that through the early months of 1996 um, because. I, it was only then in this in this in the February of that year that um, I got a job that was in the city that had some um, nighttime hours uh, that I was re- required to do and some unpredictable hours. Mm-hmm. And then I also moved to Brooklyn in March um, a month later or like six to eight weeks later. And um, and so it just it just become became untenable at that point to, to carry on with that. Did you have a car anymore? Was the Chevette still alive? No, I didn't. I I had tra- I had um, I had let my parents uh, sell the Chevette 
um, after, <laughs> um, when I started, you know, when, you know, when I had to get rid of the Chevette was, I think when I had to start commuting to a terrible, um, um, job location out in Bayshore, Long Island at a mall. Mm. And it was such a, it was such a drive from Belmore, um, that I, I think the, I don't, the, the, the Chevette couldn't handle it anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So I, I ended up getting a, a, I was very lucky that my parents could um, give me a hand me down at that point. Hmm. Um, um, yeah. What's the funniest thing that happened at the station or something that always makes you laugh? She was, I, uh, yeah, you know, I think, um, I, I mean, I have to say that the, I might have jumped the gun and, and um, that story about seeing Smashing Pumpkins uh, was, uh, was to me, uh, you know, pretty fun memory. Um, I actually had a lot of fun, if I could bring up another show where um, uh, radio, uh, um, I had some company from the radio station, um, I believe Keith and Mark joined me to go see um, the Julian Hatfield 3. Yeah. And we got back. We also got um, invited to interview the band backstage beforehand. And um, I mean, nothing, you know, nothing outrageously funny happened. I, but I do. But I do remember um, we didn't actually get to talk to her. We got to talk to her two bandmates. Um, and um, they, you know, they passed around beers and uh, it was a nice conversation. But uh, um, at some point, the the guitarist, no, the drummer got offended that I didn't know what his previous band was. Oh, no. And it kind of like, it kind of like chilled the whole thing. Like it wasn't, it wasn't fun anymore. <laughs> so um, I felt like I was, I was talking to uh, sort of a, snob at that point um wasn't you know i still had a lot to learn but no i you know i the uh definitely i mean let's uh i remember going to cmj <laughs> okay so I, I remember going to the um the cmj music marathon right that's what it yeah yeah it was the music marathon and um this was like a huge i mean it's incredible to think about this too that basically they they kind of booked enough gigs around the city that it was it was basically a festival but all within you know existing venues and um um when jen and i were co-music directors and todd was airwave producer um we all went to the warner brothers showcase show Mm -hmm. and i remember boredom's being on the ticket um, and the you know, boredoms are like one of the loudest, most kind of uh, idiosyncratic uh, bands you, you can imagine. Um, I want to say Flaming Lips were on that ticket, but um, but I know definitely that um, Green Day was as well. And this was in that Green Day days where um, every time Billy Joe uh, Armstrong was on stage, uh, he felt it uh, necessary to... Um, air out his private parts right (laughs) (laughs) um and i thought that was hilarious and and i think jen was not only asleep for that but i think she also slept through the boredoms (laughs) (laughs) 
I think, you know, again, it like goes back to what you're saying about how um, we, we had the energy, but only so much. I mean, right. it, it was untenable for a while. Yeah. I remember uh, you guys coming back from that. And I have a very distinct memory of Todd saying to me, uh, this is going to be one of the biggest bands in the world. And I was mm. like, yeah. And he's like, oh, yeah. They're going to be huge, mm-hmm. and then and yeah. then he went into the uh, into the pants dropping story, but um, which we just we just discussed recently as well. But yeah, that was that was big. Let me. I, I meant to ask this before. So when you were co music director, and I know CMG was an important part. There was a time where we were reporting to them, but we weren't necessarily guaranteed to get in it. They would just randomly take certain stations because we didn't have a subscription. Did we get a subscription at some point? Yeah, yeah I think we must have. I, I do think it became routine that um, we were getting in there um, uh, routinely. So because I know we that, that we must've... we called in every week, we weren't necessarily guaranteed to get our oh. our list printed, but I feel like at some point we did. Interesting. I yeah, I'd have to. Um, I think that's one of those publications that actually might be available to, to search through uh, online now. No, I've, so I've asked the right could, guy then. <laughs> we, could, we could we could get more of a um, we could see how accurate that is. Um, yeah, I uh, I actually don't recall the the sort of difference of whether we were subscribing or not at the time. Okay, um, I got some mileage out of them. <laughs> yeah, definitely because. I ended up, uh, that was another thing that I sort of like eased my way out of. Like I volunteered the year after I graduated. So I didn't have a station to sort of represent me anymore, but I went to shows because I basically filled enough promo bags and, and, um, helped out at, uh, um, you know, either checking tickets or whatever before, before gigs, whatever I did that in 95. What's that? Whatever it takes, you got to get to those. Yeah, shows. yeah, yeah. I I did it. I went back in two thousand. I still have my badge from that. Wow. Um, what do you miss most about working at the station? Um. The you know we had a, we basically had a clubhouse with a bunch of records. I you know that's kind of like the the thing. I it was um, it was another. It, it felt like such a, um, it was so important to have that where, you know, you didn't just go back to your dorm and maybe you, you had a roommate that you would talk to. And, you know, I was lucky too. I had, I had a few roommates cause I did one of those sweet situations, but, um, the, uh, the fact that you could drop in at any time, you could find yourself a seat. Um, you could, you could do some work or you could just like, you know, catch up on your reading or, um, or, you know, you could, um, review some records, uh, you know, read whatever, whatever garbage they, the record labels wanted you to read. Right. Um, you know, hear what people were playing. Um, all of that I think was, was just, uh was so great just the just the sort of um unpredictability yeah and but and yet and yet the reliance that like you had a safe space you know everyone 
everyone wants that now, like as a as sort of like a coping mechanism for life. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's, I think without, you know, we, we didn't put our finger on it maybe at the time, but I feel like uh, that's, that's what that, that place was. And we were literally in a basement. So we had this, uh, we came about this, uh, just because of that, there was this underdog mentality. Um, and I think when you have that, it, uh, it, it, it binds people together more, more tightly. I think there's a, uh, there's an us against the world kind of vibe, not, not hostile, but, um, that, uh, that we, you know, we've got to pull together to like make something good happen. Yeah, slightly um, hostile. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a little, a little bit of hostility. There, there are a few right. of us who had a, a few chips on our shoulders to be sure, but yeah, yeah I get, I get what nice. you're saying. The, that, uh, that camaraderie and that, that common goal and the teamwork, all the things that you've talked about. Um, yeah. If some you of get... that stuff, I, I just want to say too, that like some of it sort of, um, it, I, I do feel that some of it's calcified that, um, that spirit, some of that energy of like, or being a little arch, maybe a little cynical. Uh, it's been very hard for me to shake some of that off. <laughs> are, are you suggesting that you weren't cynical before you came to the radio station or it just got worse? It got worse. Okay. Yeah. That's fair. I think, uh, I think, you know, <laughs> I, I think in a lot of ways I am the stereotype of, of what people like can, can, can make caricature caricatures of, of Gen X types. And for a while I really reveled in it, you know, dude, are you being sarcastic? <laughs> I don't even know anymore. <laughs> you said Whitaker in. If, 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 if you know, you know. Um, if you could go back and time travel for 60 seconds and meet up with 18-year-old Brett on the campus of Hofstra University, what piece of advice or guidance would you give him? You're going to think this is so obscure and random, but um, I remember that there was another room that was filled with music that we, we didn't really venture into because I think it was, it was largely 78s and like, you know, lacquer records, which I, you know, I think, you know, here's, here's someone like me who dismissed anything before 1980 for the, for the all rock show. And so why would I have any uh, interest in what, what anything was, was uh, recorded on those things. But now, I would have really liked a chance to sort of, um, I think I should have told uh, that kid to think beyond genre and format and um, delve into something that um, is probably, you know, crackly, but like unusual and, uh, and, and maybe is formative uh, and like tells you something about popular music from, you know, 80 years prior. Um, so that's something that I think I, I, I wish I had, I wish I had tried um, to explore more. I mean, there's no reason that a show like we, we thought we were being anarchist, anarchistic on anarchy. Right. But, um, you know, we could have reached back even, even further and like uh, played more with, um, with different styles yeah. So, so Spoke, you know, spoken like a true archivist. 
Yeah, yeah. I wish I, I wish I had sort of paid attention to the old stuff a little more. Well, I think, I think that one room was hard to access. I think, I think maybe only one or two people had a key. I know a lot of people had keys, but that, that room, which is around the corner from Rich Berger's classical office, that's the one you're talking about, right? That is right. Because yeah, I think that that's where good. Elliot's records went when we first inherited them. So we didn't really uh-huh. go in there all that often, but yeah, um, what a that, shame. that, that, that is, that is. Uh, very on-brand Brett Dion to say, I want to find the most obscure corner of the most <laughs> obscure radio station within a hundred miles, and I want to hang out there. That's very on-brand. Just not hang out, but like I just want you know. I now I now I feel like they were um, abandoned children, and like yeah. they should they should not have remained you know uh, unattended to. Um, they didn't, no one had to like sort of create a show around them but um but but you would have uh sure if someone had asked me sure (laughs) i because you know i mean it's all it's all hindsight right because like later on um when i discovered like john peel's radio show and there was there was not a show that went by um in his in his later years uh where he didn't drop in um one of these 78 records it was mostly as a dedication to his wife um, uh, and I just thought they were just, it was like the sweet moment that was like isolated from what, like the drum and bass and the, um, and the hardcore metal and like, you know, some of the like death metal that he would, uh, he, you know, cause he would try anything. Yeah. But there was always this moment of like, you get like thrown back in a time machine. Mm. And so, uh, you know, that's just, is, maybe I should have just said, I wish I'd been John Peel in college and we can leave it at <laughs> I, I, I think you would have bodily just, just imploded if you met John Peel in college. I, I don't think that would have worked on the time space continuum. I, I don't know that you would have been able to handle that. No, no. <laughs> um, so if let's say here's, here's your hypothetical scenario. Let's say John Mullen uh, opens up uh, a, a, closet at the current station and and realizes those records are there and he calls you and says brett i want you to come and do a show or or would you come organize this would you go do it yeah yeah i would especially because you know now i can transfer trains at grand central (laughs) (laughs) before this year never no (laughs) That's uh, that is a. That is that on brand? That is very on brand. That is wow. Um, yeah, yeah, no, and I would, I would say, like, I, you know, as long as I can, I'll play old. I, I'll, I want to find out. I want to find out how these old records connect us to today. Like, what, what's, what's, what are these nuggets that are, um, that have parallels to. Um, you know, whether it's, uh, whether it's a Strokes record or whether it's, uh, you know, uh, Taylor Swift, you know, mm. Mm. so I would, I would tune into that show most definitely. Um, so we, we've kind of hinted at this, that the, the things that you brought from Hofstra radio and the relationships and the things, and, and people often ask me, well, what happened to so-and-so or what are they doing today? So, um, could you kind of sum up, what did you bring from the radio station with you into your professional and adult life and, and, uh, where did it lead you? 
Yes. It's all about the stuff. And <laughs> it's it's become it's actually in my mind it's maybe become too much about the stuff. Like I, you know, I I yin yin and yang and uh um I was saying before about how much I I I value those friendships and the the sense of resilience I I had uh from from those friendships. Um but I I also uh for much of that time also felt very much consoled and sort of in control when I had um, things around me to sort of organize and, and uh, process. So, you know, the fact that I was like writing reviews on CDs, well, those weren't just reviews. They were basically trying to encapsulate what was, what was contained um, that someone could read in like, you know, 10 seconds before Mm -hmm. they put it in the, in the machine. So, um, uh, you know, that's part of like what, what makes me tick as an archivist and, um, making sure that, uh, researchers get the, the information that just the, the basics, um, you know, they'll have to do some of the work themselves when it gets into the, the actual reading of, of letters and sort some sort of that content that to that degree, but, you know, there's always, uh, an effort on our part to, um, to tell you at least what the collection is about, mm. you know, what is this material about? Who was this person? Um, you know, I spent, I spent two years, uh, working on a project, uh, focused on, uh, describing oral histories. And mm-hmm. in some ways that took me back to, uh, things I, I had sort of relied upon at, at, uh, the radio station. So, um, there you go. I mean, uh, and also giving people things when sometimes they don't know that they need it. Mm. I mean, that sounds like a little bit, Mm -hmm. that's, 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 uh, what's that's arrogance. (laughs) Um, but, um, but basically when someone is looking for something and maybe they just don't, they, they haven't thought of like the right vocabulary word that, that will, that will get them to the record that they want. Um, and I, when I say record, right, we're talking about files and folders. Sure. Um, but it all corresponds to what we, what we were doing then where we were, we were, you know, trying to provide a public service, um, of enrichment, uh, for, for people's ears and their moods and their, I mean, you know, Note to the record companies: We weren't trying to just sell your product. Right. This is a public service announcement with guitars. Yes. Thank you. Long live Joe Strummer. <laughs> Amen. Um, dude, this is this has been uh, tremendous. Thank you um, for going down memory lane and sharing all this this with me. And and uh, it has to be said that that. Uh, my enrichment as a human being, as a person would be, would be, uh, greatly diminished for not, uh, if I, if we'd never crossed paths, uh, I've learned so much from you and, uh, we've had a lot of good times, a lot of stupid times. We've damaged mm-hmm. our eardrums together to a great extent. Mm-hmm. And this project such as it is, um, again, comes from, uh, knowing you and, and having an appreciation for, uh, the stories and the way that things are story uh, told and the and the way those stories are are, are kept. So 
uh, a, a great deal of the inspiration for this project just comes from uh, so many of the things I've, I've learned from you over the years. So, so thank you, man. This is, uh, this has been great. Thanks for the opportunity for, uh, for me to um, really focus more on the, the people um, uh, with, with this, with this time around, because I was, uh, I knew I was much more um, tenuous about the first time we talked and it sort of reflects how I felt about coming into the station, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So this, 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 uh, point of, of the story is, um, is, it makes me happy, puts a smile on my face to, to think about the, the way things kind of, you know, uh, wrapped up and, and, um, that momentum from that time. More of a, more of a happy ending, rough start, but a more of a happier ending. I think so. And I, yeah. And it, and it gives me, uh, gives me pause to think about, uh, what to, what to leave and what to take away, um, for my future. Hmm. Dude, this is great. Um, I can't wait to go back and listen back to all this and, uh, and really enjoy it. Thank you so much. Thank you.